Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm owner of Extreme Human Performance and teacher for the Kerrig Institute. This is Kayla Ruffner. I will be finishing my bachelor's in exercise physiology, I'm off to grad school for my master's, and former competitive studio dancer. And I'm Grant Slack. I'm a current pre-med biochem major, and I'll be going to medical school next year, and I'm currently an NCAA track athlete. Okay, so uh, Dr. Nelson and I, we've got some uh, students. Grant's been on the show before, some people might remember, but we are coming live from Experimental Biology. And this is a pretty big meeting. I think there's around 15,000 people or so. Um, so... That's why there's a little bit of background noise, but we wanted to give everybody an update. We're going to start with some of the posters that we looked at. Um, we were sort of joking that, you know, any, anything related to gains, we are going to try to write down some, you know, notes about them. Uh, so we're going to deal with that. And then in the topic of the day, we'll, we'll ask Kayla some of what she's doing with the coffee research. She's looking at gender responses. I know we have a lot of female listeners, and so we're going to take a look at that. Uh, actually, I think we're going to start with Dr. Nelson here because uh, one of the first posters that we came across had to do with chewing and what it did to your physiology. So, Yeah, it was interesting. It was a study looking at the effect of chewing and the effect of taste. So they had different things that they were testing. And so one of the things they would have you chew for X amount of time And then they would have you hold some of the control beverages in your mouth for, say, 30 seconds, um, different things of that nature. And what was interesting is that uh, they found that the sort of what they called the mastication group, so the chewing group, and the taste trials, so if you combine them. So in English, you're basically chewing your food a lot and trying to enjoy the taste of it. They actually showed that it did increase what's called dietary-induced thermogenesis, or DIT. The control trial was 43 plus or minus 5 kcals per kg. It's actually just calories per kg. They normalized that. And then the taste trial was actually higher at 75, and the mastication trial, so the combination, was higher at 107. So again, if you translate that, what it means is you get a pretty big, almost a doubling effect by just slowing down and chewing your food and enjoying the taste of it. They did some other background info looking at blood flow, looking at uh, splenic circulation and different things of that to try to determine the mechanism. So while the actual like hard numbers aren't really massive, um, I thought it was interesting that the... DIT or how much basically energy you're expending was, you know, rather more of an increase than you would expect just from chewing your food and enjoying the taste, which are things you would want to do anyway. I almost think that relates 
wasn't that a Japanese poster? Is that what you said? Uh, yes, it's called Simulation to the Oral Cavity Increases Splenetic Circulation and Diet-Induced Thermogenesis After Drink Intake from Yoko Hamadi, H-A-M-A-D-A, from Tokyo, Japan. It just makes me think about the idea that... It, 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 w- you remember what it was like when we were in Japan with yeah. the, the way food is presented and it's eaten slowly and it's chewed. It's not like Americans wolfing down, you know, chili fries. Yeah, it was very interesting. Lots of bright colors, lots of chewy, gelatinous things. They were very big on different food textures and presentations where a lot of American food just kind of seems a little bit more bland, I guess. And this wasn't like high-end fancy restaurants. This was like what they were feeding us at the hotel and conferences and stuff too, so... Yeah, sort of almost quality over quantity. Yeah. Okay, what else do we have here? Um, we we saw a couple of posters on medium-chain triglycerides. If you're not familiar, they're shorter than regular long-chain dietary fats. And I've been a proponent for years. I, uh, they sort of fell off the radar because at first exercise physiologists tried to give MCTs to endurance athletes because they're they're shorter, they're more water-soluble, more water-mixable, and the hope was that they would provide instant energy for runners along with the Gatorade and whatnot. And that didn't really work because if they if you consume more than maybe, um, I don't know, 20 grams or so, you get diarrhea. Uh, but it doesn't mean that in, in measured doses they can't have an effect. And there was an interesting paper, and I'm just going to kind of give you the cliff notes, but um, they fed MCT purposely to try to keep the Krebs cycle turning if you will. So the Krebs cycle, the word we use in in physiology is anaplerotic, which means you have to feed it carbons because it tends to degrade under its own will because you lose carbon dioxides with every turn. That's why you breathe out the carbon dioxides. But anyway, so they used MCTs uh, and they wanted to see if they could sort of keep the Krebs cycle rolling and increase fat oxidation, fat burning. Uh, As it turned out, it worked. But one of the issues with it was that um, they were also feeding PPAR agonists, so drugs that are known to do these kinds of things. So they're not just feeding the fat as a carbon source to keep your Krebs cycle, your again, your aerobic metabolism, if you will, moving, but then they're also uh, using drugs. But again, I guess my take-home from this is that there were more than one poster about MCTs and... Um, if you're not familiar, that's one of the reasons coconut oil is so popular is because it's sort of poor man's MCT. It's about 60% uh, MCT by content. So, so some interesting stuff. And again, it, it gave me at least uh, some level of encouragement that it was something that shouldn't just be set aside because it wasn't instantly ergogenic in a marathon runner. <clears throat> I just have one quick comment on that. Um, yeah, so the early MCTs, I tried them back in like the mid-90s. And I had to run to the bathroom very fast. And they were, other than sprinting to the bathroom for an ergogenic, they weren't very useful. Um, and the theory was that back then they were also very much combined C8 and C10, and they were higher on the C10. So they also tended to screw with absorption and things of that nature. They tasted like absolute crap. It was this orange-flavored, just disgusting liquid. Um, so a pro professional tip you can try now is that if you take too much coconut oil and you have an issue running to the bathroom, uh, look for something that's more of a pure C8 oil, and that tends to have much less of the dietary issues associated with it, and it's still an MCT. Yeah, I actually have some of that orange oil yeah, in, yeah. A, in a big... Yep. It's, it, you can get it on Amazon. It's yeah. cheap. 
But I can see why people, because the coconut, I don't think, people don't have as much gastric distress in general with the coconut, because it's not entirely right, like lauric and muristic acid, right? right? Yeah. Uh, the next one, uh, just to touch on before we keep moving, is vitamin E. Uh, we saw a poster, this was a, was it in Switzerland or Sweden? Do you remember? the? the it was almost all women. Sweden. Sweden. Uh, and they were looking at the relationship between di- different dietary markers and uh, glucose intolerance, like pre-diabetes or, or type 2 diabetes. And um, one of the highlights on the poster was that vitamin E, and we were trying to figure out exactly how they were measuring it. It, it looked obscure how they were looking at it, but... Um, vitamin E had an inverse relationship with glucose intolerance, with poor carbohydrate use. So again, it was just an association. It's not cause and effect. Listeners know I hate when journalists, they, you know, they, they say something's linked and automatically think it's causal. Um, but it, it was interesting enough for me to think that, oh, maybe if your vitamin E status is better, you, you know, you supplement vitamin E, you might be better off when it comes to your carbohydrate handling. Now remember, these are, they were looking at pre-diabetic or diabetic, um, women from Sweden, so that may or may not apply to the, you know, average male or female from America, certainly the the male weightlifter, but um, yeah, inverse relationship whereby more vitamin E led to lower glucose intolerance, right, or less problems with diabetes. Better glucose intolerance. Better glucose intolerance. More vitamin E would be, would mean less glucose intolerance, intolerance. Yeah. right. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was our next one. Grant, what do you have? Uh, so one of the ones that I looked at was a study that was sponsored by the USDA. And basically what they wanted to look at was whether the protein composition of a meal you ate could influence your snack choices later in the day. And so basically they took groups and either fed them a 15% protein meal or a 30% protein meal. And then looked four hours later, they used a computer reward system where you could either choose a savory reward or a sweet reward. And they looked to see whether the change in uh, protein percentage of the meal you ate previously would influence your choice of reward. And what they found was that for men, it didn't matter. We just wanted the reward. It didn't matter whether we ate 15% protein or 30% protein. We said, give us the reward. Uh, But for women, the 30% protein group had a big reduction in the selection of a savory reward. And so that's what they found. And then they also found that just the mere presence of a reward stimulated men more than women. Uh, and I mean that was the basics of the study that was the majority of what they found yeah some of the figures were sort of confusing a little hard to interpret some of that stuff um, it was interesting though gender differences in, in response to you know these kinds of rewards uh, our, the next one was from Jess Gwynn and so um, Mike why don't you handle that one yeah, so very interesting poster there from the Department of Nutritional Science, Purdue University. And what they were looking at was the effects of protein compared to water in terms of basically kind of appetite. They looked at a few sub-factors of that. And they wanted to look at different types of protein to see was there an effect on they call they use that in what's called ad libitum lunch afterwards. And most listeners can probably guess that if you eat protein beforehand and you have another group that has water, the group that had protein is probably going to eat less. 
What they were interested in is looking to see the different types of protein affect that. So they used an instant egg white protein. They used another type of egg white. They used a micellar casein and a whey isolate. And the thought being that maybe the different type of protein would have greater satiety type um, effect. And while if you look at the data, it's not really statistically significant all the time. Uh, micellar casein was a little bit higher, um, but not a huge amount of difference between the different types of protein. So what they concluded was that when comparing high-quality animal-based proteins consumed as a beverage, uh, relatively no difference in markers of appetite control or society or subsequent food intake were detected, suggesting that protein quality has little impact on these outcomes when consuming 30 grams of protein. So again, they still showed that consuming the protein compared to water was definitely better, but the different types of protein in and of themselves didn't seem to matter that much. Um, they did cite that some of the limitations were that there was a big difference in viscosity of the protein preload, that 30 grams of protein may have sort of saturated the system, so there was maybe not that much of a difference. So again, if you're taking less protein, you may not um, see that. And they also did note that the protein beverage overall is weaker in satiety effects compared to a solid protein food. And again, they were only looking at changes in protein beverages. So the takeaway there is if you're trying to decrease food consumption at a later meal, an easy way would be just to have some type of protein of around 30 grams beforehand. And the exact type of that protein probably, according to this study, doesn't matter that much. All right, as we were searching around, we also, uh, there was a paper by Sayer and colleagues from Colorado, and it was one of those posters that keep cropping up, I think almost to the irritation of certain dietitians, but um, it was about red meat and protein intake. Uh, What they did was they they put people on a lower calorie diet, and they did not really define how hypocaloric it was, how low it was in calories, but it was enough to make some uh, pretty large individuals, they were 100 kilo people, so 220 pounders, uh, lose 9 kilograms, so about 20 pounds over four months. Uh, But the interesting thing was, uh, they looked at uh, protein intake and showed how that was effective in uh, helping with this uh, loss. Now, uh, to stack on top of that, it wasn't just protein. They made a point to say red meat was an important part of this. And, and their conclusions were actually saying that red meat is a healthful choice uh, for people when they are trying to increase extra protein uh, and lose weight. So, again, that was a Sayer and colleagues from Colorado. Uh, interesting sort of um, support for red meat as part of a healthy fat loss diet. Uh, and then the last one that I have here in front of me, just with the scribbled notes, uh, it was a study from Texas where they actually took people and they gave them 70% of all of their dietary protein as whey isolate. Uh, and then they they had them do seven days of bed rest. So, of course, that's going to cause a lot of muscle loss. Uh, in fact, it, when they gave them the whey protein, sort of ballparking this, but there was about 20% less atrophy, 20% less muscle loss uh, in the people who consumed the vast majority of their protein as whey. I think one of the uh, interesting tidbits, though, is that once they underwent rehab, and the poster wasn't really clear on how they did the rehab, but once they went through seven days of rehab, um, that protective effect of whey sort of 
washed out where there wasn't that much of a difference um, in the end of all of this, right? After the bed rest, plus some rehab, uh, the way protein wasn't doing anything as dramatic. But immediately post-bed rest, there was significantly less muscle loss in the people who consumed uh, the whey. So I thought that was interesting. And uh, there was some VO2 max differences too, right, Mike? Yeah, and that one they saw a greater increase in VO2 max in the whey protein group compared to the mixed protein group, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting because, as Lonnie was saying, there wasn't a, a difference when they did the rehab. But for some reason, maybe it's immune-related, maybe there's some other type of mechanism they didn't state that when the aerobic capacity was measured, that in the whey protein group, that was actually better. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to check in uh, with uh, Kayla, and she's going to talk about some of the work out of our lab on how coffee affects explosive lifts uh, and gender differences that might come out of all that. Hey, listeners. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you Uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead. All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You can simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. All right, we're back here from Experimental Biology in Chicago. And before we talk about some super cool coffee research from Dr. Lowry's lab, um, I had one more thing, and Dr. Lowry had one more comment, too. Uh, one of the other posters I saw was from two people from Japan on reishi mushroom, and they used an extract of it, and they were looking at what actually goes on in humans. And they did a bunch of different gene arrays. They did a bunch of different things looking at DNA methylation, They looked at some different things related to immune factors. And while it wasn't really an outcome-based study, it was a little bit more of an exploratory just to see what's actually going on, it seemed to have pretty wide-reaching effects 
Um, as far as we could tell, probably more in the positive direction. Uh, did seem to enhance several things that helped the immune system. And they had done some previous rodent work, and one of the rodent studies, they said that the Rishi extended the rodent's life by four years, which in rat years, that's like a super long period of time. And so I asked them if they take Rishi personally, and both of them said that they did. And I was curious as to about what amounts they take, and they said for both of them it was around one gram per day. Um, so... Anyway, so I thought that was something interesting, and you're seeing a lot more medicinal mushrooms sort of cropping up on the supplement aisles now, too. Okay, yeah, so I wanted to bring up, I mentioned multiple MCT posters. Uh, here's a poster by uh, Takami and colleagues. And in my experience, a lot of the medium-chain triglyceride specialty fast stuff comes out of the Japanese labs, but it's entitled The Effects of Medium-Chain... Um, medium-chain fatty acid on the expression of genes related to the glycolytic and fatty acid pathways in mice after starvation. So think refeed, right? Now, yes, it's a mouse study, but they start by saying that uh, medium-chain fatty acids, they're absorbed without a micelle. Uh, in other words, it's, I guess you could say easier to digest and get absorption. Uh, they're transferred right to your liver through the portal vein, and they get used as a very efficient energy source. In the fitness world, oftentimes people will say MCTs are um, more of it is oxidized or burnt than stored, and there's some truth to that. Um, so they talk about it being a useful uh, energy sources as we examined whether refeeding a diet containing MCT after starvation uh, in mice affects the expression of genes related to glycolysis and fatty acid synthesis. So I don't want to bore people with all the details, but these are two pathways that lead up to new fat creation. Uh, glycolysis, when you run it really hard, for example, when there's a lot of insulin around, a lot of sugar around, uh, its products can be used to build fat. So uh, I don't want to uh, go through all of the gory details, but to cut to the chase, uh, the results suggested that uh, refeeding uh, the diet uh, that included MCT, uh, again, after a period of starvation, it led to at least a suggestion of suppressed genes that would drive glycolysis and fat synthesis. So uh, MCT as potentially a helpful refeed substance. Uh, again, um, rodent data, I get that, but uh, interesting stuff. And again, I, MCT is the kind of stuff that I think it has enough promise. I, I wouldn't want to see people just set it aside because of some of the initial reports back from the 80s and 90s. All right, we've got that behind us, and my phone is winding down in battery life. But So we're going to get right to our discussion. Uh, let's start with the title uh, of what you're going to present. So it's not just a poster, it's actually a podium talk, and I know there's some heavy hitters in that session, but in any case, let's start with the title of the study. Um, it's the effects of caffeine consumption on the myotatic reflex, and it's a gender comparison. Uh-oh. What is a myotatic reflex? Why would lifters care? It's actually your stretch reflex, so it helps with your muscle contraction and reflection. So part of the presentation, listeners, is that... Um, this is a monosynaptic thing, right? So as soon as a muscle gets stretched, it'll send a message to your spinal cord. It's a reflex. You don't have to think about it. And that reflex will make a muscle contract harder. So that should be interesting. And to really anybody who's an athlete or a lifter um, who needs to a little bit of prior stretch before they go. Like if you think about a power lifter, if he were to take the weight down to his chest and pause, he wouldn't get a lot of stretch reflex. Whereas if someone 
does it in a more jerky fashion, um, ballistic fashion, than it would. So the general hypothesis was that if if you gave them enough coffee or caffeine, then either that stimulant or the adrenaline that came from it would sort of enhance the whole pathway? Yeah, so we hypothesized that once um, our subjects consume caffeine, that we would have a greater response in the stretch reflex and absolute force and time-to-peak power variables compared to without caffeine. So we wanted to see if men or women would get the better, the greater enhancement. Yeah, so I just wanted to make a comment. Um, this is kind of like what we did a little bit last year with the stretch reflex, and it's kind of looking at gender comparisons. But I'm a high jumper and triple jumper on the track team, and so I actually dose myself with caffeine before each of my events uh, to kind of get a little bit extra boost because it's a quick, jerky movement. And if any of you have watched the jump, it's not something you have time to think about. So it's nice that this is just a quick reflex loop that can kind of give you a little bit of a maybe a little bit of a benefit right before uh, you compete. Yeah, one way people can think of the stretch reflex is, or I think of it as kind of almost a survival mechanism. So if you're moving really fast, like on a bench press, Lonnie was saying, and you have to reverse that motion, you want all the muscles and everything to fire as best it can so you don't destroy your joints and cause some other type of damage. So it's almost kind of a sort of protective mechanism too. All right, so let's get back to, to you, Kayla. Um, what exactly did you give the subjects to drink and how? Um, they consumed two packets of Via Instant Coffee, which actually Starbucks sells it. And it was put into their cup, and it was a double blind, so they didn't know if they were receiving um, caffeine or decaffeinated coffee. And it was provided at room temperature, so it wasn't the best thing to drink in the world, but it actually was a lot it has the highest caffeine content for us to use yeah it's worth noting in fact dr nelson turned me on to this but brewed coffee is all over the place in in coffee content even commercial uh was it starbucks do you remember starbucks study yeah um, anthony almada sent me that a while ago and i think there was like even plus or minus 100 milligram caffeine difference on some of the starbucks coffees that they sampled from the same starbucks different locations so even they're brewed on the same coffee being the same process it still was very variable and if you compare different even beans and anything like that you start getting just massive differences yeah, so we're not funded by Starbucks or anything like that. I'm sure Kayla's going to get asked that, you know, but it's it's just because it's so strict. Uh, we went over to uh, one of the labs across campus that Grant's very familiar with, and we had uh, one of the professors actually take a look, and VIA is very tight. It's 164 plus or minus 3 milligrams per pack, and we gave everybody two packs. And I don't know if you remember from episodes past, but um, even Phil, we gave uh, two packets of, of Via and lit him right up, you know, and he weighed like 270 pounds at the time. So this is enough to give somebody a jolt for sure. Um, yeah, and it was given an hour before, right? Um, what, so tell us again, like, what did you measure? Like, how do you measure a repetition in the lab? Because this wasn't about fatigue, right? No, um, we use a ballistic measurement system. So my for, my variables are more of the peak force and time to peak power because those are the best ways to analyze your stretch reflex from beginning to end. And the ballistic measurement system is a software. Um, it basically is a little box that you connect to the Smith. We use a Smith, Smith bench press machine, and the tether gets connected to the outside of the 
um, actual bar itself so we can analyze through the computer. And those give us all the variables. And it shows you a lot of different analysis, but the peak, obviously peak force and time peak power were the only ones like actual replicate our study. All right, so in a nutshell, because again, we have a lot of women who listen and a lot of them do explosive lifts. Was there, were there any differences at all in the stretch reflex, in what coffee did to their stretch reflex? Um, for both men and women, it gave them an enhancement, but it was more apparent in men. Um, with some literature I read that I've read uh, before actually turning in my abstract, it said that women kind of have a natural quick reflex, um, which is kind of interesting to point out because it's from all different angles. Some people say it's from a hormonal level and some people just say it's from how we're genetically made. So it kind of gives us more insight into if people want to do future research, they should probably look on a more molecular level and actually analyze the hormones of both men and women to kind of see if any estrogen or testosterone is the reason why um, the stretch reflexes are so different and why the enhancements are so much more apparent in men. It is worth noting that uh, Kayla and I and Grant and I did measure adrenaline and noradrenaline. Um, th- that, that's not what we're presenting here, so maybe we'll talk about that in the future. But we're looking at were there any, um, what kind of response did you get? Now, we didn't do a gender split, but uh, there was a lot of, actually, you did do with norepinephrine, yeah. Uh, so we're trying to tease apart some of these hormonal mechanisms, whether it's sex hormones or adrenaline uh, or, or whatever it, it might be. Um, but I, I think one of the conclusions from your work, though, is that if you're going to look at force output and you're ever going to compare like what coffee does to boys versus girls, to be fair, you have to correct for their body mass, right, for their body weight. So for our study, we, com- we co-vary for body mass because obviously we don't... Um, dose caffeine per kg either and just the the covariance uh for time to peak power it was still statistically significant so obviously with the covarying it helped us actually see more of a difference in the stretch reflex compared to not covarying so uh, listeners you can think about covarying adjusting for body weight so it takes body weight out of the equation almost think of it like a percentage in fact um some of the work that kayla's showing it actually shows a percentage as well but so when, when you look at percentage from baseline it's just a way more fair way to look at genders when it comes to power right power variables like this again like you know f- explosive force time to peak power especially force variables right because it's just not fair for example uh 10 percent of a let's say there's a you got a guy and his, he can bench 300 pounds 10% of that is 30 pounds. So the absolute numbers look way bigger than, than let's say, a woman. She might only go up 9 pounds from the coffee, but that's 10% for her, too, if her max bench press is 90, right? So covariating, think of it almost like a percentage. You're making a fair comparison, and we need to be able to do this, right? But there was one variable that, body weight aside, the time to peak power did remain a little different between the genders. Is that right? Yes, it did. Um, the percentages were a little bit um, more apparent than absolute force. I, I was surprised uh, in the guys, there was something like a 60% decrease in time to peak power. Now remember, decrease is better. Lower is better with this. Think about like a lower time to run the 40, something like that. So, um, 
Yeah, so, okay, so I guess I'll just say with this, should single effort lifters, so again, fatigue isn't part of this, so should single effort lifters drink coffee before they train? Um, they should c- consider caffeine consumption at least an hour, maybe an hour and a half prior to their workout because it will enhance their contraction for their stretch reflex. Uh, one of the things I think that was cool about this study is it, it did, we were able to detect the stretch reflex, right? That's a known phenomenon. And we're able to see that with the ballistic measurement system, right, that you're talking about. Um, and that we, and we can see how coffee stacks with that. So bottom line is coffee does stack with it. It does enhance that stretch reflex, which is like Grant was saying in athletics or in a lot of different lifts that are explosive. That's, that's where it's at. And coffee boosts that. So it does stack with that. Boys and girls get a benefit. And at least with the the early speed of the contraction, right, that's the one thing where boys might get a little bit more out of it. But it's really important, again, to make it sort of relative to a person's body size um, and even look at the hormones and stuff like that. It's, I, I can tell you, gender comparisons with lifting, are, in, to me, are harder than with the cardio stuff. Like VO2 max, it seems like a little bit more fair across gender comparison. But the power stuff is, is really tough. I don't, Mike, do you have any comment on that? Or? No, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, well, that's about it. My phone's about to die. So um, that's the update from Experimental Biology. We'll catch up with everybody next time, maybe with some more reports, because there's just so much information here, it's kind of mind-blowing. So we'll see you next time. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting 
supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.